on this week's episode of the Green Door Podcast. We get a taste of May in November. We break down Bilbo's share of a dragon's hoard. We get primed to use our seeing stones. We discuss a dark lord and an even darker lady. And we evaluate the High King of the Powers. All this and much more coming up right now. Hey everyone, it's Ads. I'm uh, making my way to Rivendell uh, to meet James and May for a very special council. I said I'd meet them there this evening. Um, I couldn't make the eagle that they caught. And well... I quite fancy a little trek out here in the wilderness. Just me, my pipe, my trusty walking stick. No need to be hasty about getting here. After all, it's uh, not every day you get to wander around these wonderful lands. Now, I know um, from experience that uh, Rivendell can be quite tricky to find, but luckily, I know the way to do it. What you've got to do is look out these tiny white stones are on the ground. They form a ever so faint path. I learnt that one from the wizard. Crikey, it's wild. It's uh, so open up here. You can see the misty mountains uh, stretching out high in front of me. I'll tell you what, if I didn't know better, I'd be convinced that I'd be at the foot of it before too long taking this path. But really menacing dust light. I'm glad I'm not. Now somewhere around here, amongst all these moss-coloured moss stones and purple heather, there's a very steep um, edge. Now it's hidden from... Whoa! Okay, there it is. Yeah, it is hidden from view. Phew. Um, okay, uh, steep. Um, tick. Zig-zagging path. Okay, so... Better start on that. I can hear the sound of hurrying water. Um, I can smell the scent of pine trees, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, yeah, it's definitely a bit warmer, the air down here. That's good. It's a good sign. Oh, wow. Oh, that's quite the sight. Look at that. Rivendell. The fair valley of Rivendell. The last homely house west of the mountains. Or east of the sea. House of Elrond, on the very edge of the wild. Beautiful. I'm going to stop here, catch my breath, um, sit down on this rock, and I'm going to get out my elf eyes, uh, binoculars, and see if I can spot who's walking across that glade down there. Um, let's have a look. Ah, uh, yep, there's James. Uh, and May, May by the looks of it. Uh, Caitlin, oh good, uh, Pepper, Ashik, oh there's Dave Donovan, yep, uh, oh the Thomases, good stuff, ah Jeff, wonderful, uh, who's that, Barry, Baza, awesome, Guy, yep, Joel, Karen, uh, Olga, good, uh, Paul, is that Paul, I think it's Paul, uh, that looks like Ruth, um, I think that's Tanya, oh and there's Sarah, good. Oh, and there's Sarah. Uh, oh, there, there's Sarah. Um, I think that one's Sarah. 
Yep, Sarah. And, uh, oh, yep, Sarah. Wonderful. I'm sure there'll be plenty more as well. That's good. It should be a good crowd tonight. Right, well, I can see the path um, that leads down to the river. Um, and there's that narrow stone bridge. You've got to watch your footing on that. And looking through these binoculars, I can see the doors to Rivendell wide open. Let's go in. Hey James, hey May, uh, good to be back amongst the elves and May, great to see you again. No, so great to see you, Ads, and you, James. I'm so happy to be back. Ads, I love the ears. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, 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 little, the little pointy ones I borrowed off my five-year-old. Um, he's, uh, he's taken to dressing up as Legolas, so um, yeah, I thought I'd wear them specially for you. And I've brought some cake as well. Cake. I love cake. Hey, James, you still have some of that meat pie? Oh, don't even. You've never brought me any meat pie, May. I never <laughs> okay, got I on. never wait, received wait. my meat pie. I sat by the doorway all evening. Wait. Hold on. I have some I have some in my bag here. Okay. Here's one for you and one for you ads. I made it extra special. It's a uh, they call it tourtière around here. I was going to so, say, you, meat pie. you genericized the name um, in calling it meat pie, but I, I love a good tourtière, and there's nobody who can make a good tourtière like a French-Canadian. Um, I can't wait to taste it. It sounds yeah. amazing, but I'm not going to try and repeat the name. <laughs> <laughs> May, it's so nice to have you back. You were up north... Um, uh, practicing your trade and, and uh, having a, a life-changing experience just, um, you know, with, without uh, delving too much into your 14-hour days because I know they were uh, long and exhausting. Can, can you sum up the experience for us? Yeah, so basically I travel to a place called Shefferville, which is way up north in, uh, a, it's close to Labrador actually, uh, so up north in Quebec. And I went there to provide uh, First Nations with some healthcare treatments, and uh, it was another world. It was definitely a life-changing experience um, to see the reality that natives have to compose with on a daily basis is really um, life-changing, and it makes you appreciate like all the little things that you have back home that they unfortunately don't have I bet. up there. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm so glad I went, and I'm considering perhaps going back again um, later on this winter. And uh, that's it. We'll see you until then. Oh, good for you. It sounds like uh, something that opens your eyes to, uh, to a whole other side of things. And yeah, whenever you travel, eh, you just get a, a perspective. No matter where you go, travel is good for perspective. Absolutely. Builds character. <laughs> cool. Another world, you said. Just like, just like the feel of where we are tonight, guys. Back in Rivendell, uh, Rivendell. a very special place. And we come here yes. uh, for a very special reason, which we'll come to uh, towards the end of the show. But I would like to welcome everybody uh, back to accompany us on our journey through Chapter 8. Uh, the Green Door Podcast is rolling. Uh, we're firing off episodes that are... Uh, a breakneck speed. <laughs> it's been five weeks since we recorded. Um, and, and we're blasting our way through this book. But uh, we're really looking forward to getting, getting at it tonight. We've been talking with each other over the social media 
uh, all week, and I'm pretty pumped about it, so let's dive in. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, I hope everybody found a chair. Finding your way to Rivendell will become easier and easier because we will be coming back here every time we have a special occasion. And, and as you uh, find your seat and, and uh, make yourself comfortable, uh, Ads, I'm going I'm to let you do your thing and uh, light up that fire, buddy. Oh, okay. Excellent. Um, oh, there's a nice pile of freshly chopped uh, firewood over here, so I'm sure... Oh, that looks the... like cherry wood. That's going to smell delicious. Yeah, they, they won't mind if I use this, will they? So um, uh, maybe don't tell Elrond if you see him. Um, okay, I'll put this there. Um, yeah, right, here we go. All right, as uh, Ads lights up the fire, as he always does, I'm going to thank everybody for joining us. I hope you've all found your way here through our Facebook group. And uh, Ads, can you tell everybody uh, how to find us there if they haven't already? No, absolutely. Um, so we have a growing, um, really fun uh, Facebook group, the Green Door Podcast. Uh, there's 149 of us there now, and um, it's just a really, really fun place to you know talk about something that we're all interested in that we all enjoy talking about so <coughs> do come and find us uh, and you'll get your own personalized green door um, and an anecdote adds the, yeah the, the door is is you know it's nice it's a sort of a cute touch but your anecdotes your little uh, scenarios that you walk everybody in with i i, I love them it's like a whole story <laughs> it's, it's like my my canon is growing of things yeah. that have happened in the shire it's um it's good fun and you know what but someone knocks on that door probably most times when I don't have that much time to think of something. And so they tend to be quite spur of the moment. But at the moment, I'm managing to, to, to find a scenario for, for each one. You're um, not going to out of the park, buddy. Good job. And so, May, uh, did you bring along with you the mailbag tonight? I did. I did. I got it. It's right over here. Oh, oh, it's heavy tonight. And look at that. Filled Ooh. with listener love. Yeah. And shimmering with mother of pearl. <laughs> it looks so pretty in the yeah. firelight. I have to say it every show. It just looks beautiful. Uh, give it a shake so it we can uh, we can see it sparkle. Yeah, here we go. And ads, you right. want to pull uh, you want to pull the question off the top there. It's a good one tonight. Okay. Oh, it's a good one. Uh, from our friend Dave Donovan, um, and he—I mean, I'll, I'll paraphrase—but he he wants us to discuss how come when Bilbo comes home at the end of the Hobbit, he comes home with a, a small chest of silver and gold when he was promised um, obviously so much more. And discuss that we will. Thanks for the great question, Dave. I like this question because on the surface it does sort of seem a little unfair. Bilbo Baggins sets out on this epic adventure, conquers a dragon, uh, he was promised a share of a mountain of gold, and returns home with just two small chests of silver and gold. So what happened? Uh, I think the best way to break this question down is to do it in three parts. Uh, Number one, what was Bilbo promised? Number two, what was Bilbo paid? And number three, did Bilbo feel wholly compensated at the end of it? So I've bookmarked some pages. Bear with me as I thumb through them. I think we'll take uh, a few pieces of evidence here to discuss whether or not uh, Bilbo felt wholly compensated at the end. 
Um, but first we'll discuss number one, what was Bilbo promised? And that one is pretty easy because Thorin and company laid out very specifically in a contract what yeah. was to be his compensation. He was promised up to and not exceeding one fourteenth of all profits. Yeah. Uh, Thorin was no fool. Um, one fourteenth share uh, was guaranteed to him because it was possible that at the end of things there would be less than 14 of them uh, to split the treasure if they did succeed at all. Uh, but Thorin didn't want to have to give up more than uh, he needed to. So one fourteenth not exceeding was Bilbo's share. Clever, clever. Uh, I also think it's just a quick side note, interesting um, to point out, I don't think that everybody was guaranteed one fourteenth share, even though there were 14 of them. I think that's the number they used to entice Bilbo to come along. Yeah. But I can't imagine Thorin was planning on splitting the treasure, you know, giving Feely and Keeley, for example, the same uh, share as he was going to take for himself, uh, them being his nephews. Uh, I think he thought the treasure was his birthright, and I think that one fourteenth share was just the uh, the number they used to entice Bilbo. Sure, yeah. But I digress. Um, so one fourteenth share of all profits, if if any were to be had. Uh, but number two, what was he paid? What did he end up with in the end? Um, well... There's a list of things. Besides the, uh, the small chest of silver and gold, um, he came home with Sting, which he got from the, uh, the trolls, the troll horde. He came home with a mithril coat. Um, he came home with the one small chest of silver and one small chest of gold. Uh, and, he, and he was also compensated with a necklace, um, which he gave to uh, the king of the uh, Greenwood elves, Thranduil. So uh, he did it, you know, he did come away with some very valuable things. Now let's yeah. talk about that mithril coat for a second. So I'm turning now to page 277 of The Hobbit, chapter Not at Home, uh, Thorin speaking. Mr. Baggins, he cried, here is the first payment of your reward. Cast off your old coat and put on this. With that, he put on Bilbo a small coat of mail wrought for some young elf prince long ago. It was of silver steel, which the elves call mithril. Uh, So it's specified at that point that the mithril coat was part of his payment and uh, less than the 114th value because he says part of your reward. Yeah. uh, Which we find out um, that mithril coat does have an enormous value. In fact, uh, later on in Fellowship of the Ring, on page 417, A Journey in the Dark... Uh, we find out, we catch up with, with uh, Gimli, who says, What? cried Gimli, startled out of his silence. A corset of Moria silver? That was a kingly gift. Yes, said Gandalf. I never told him, but its worth was greater than the value of the whole shire and everything in it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the value of his 114th share is, is, a, is awfully high considering uh, the mithril coat was part of the payment, but not, yep. <laughs> you know, not the whole thing. So we have uh, Sting in his possession when he comes home. We have that extremely valuable mithril coat. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about why he comes home with that chest of silver and chest of gold in the end. Because really, uh, Bilbo gives up his claim uh, to his share of the treasure altogether when he steals the Arkenstone. Um, proving himself a thief in the end, uh, when he steals the Arkenstone and takes it to Bard and, and gives it to Bard in order to give Bard some negotiating power, 
when uh, Thorin is, is uh, riddled with dragon sickness and, and uh, no longer negotiating. So we'll turn quickly to page 314 of The Hobbit, A Thief in the Night. Uh, when Bilbo does hand over the Arkenstone, Bil- uh, Bard asks, But how is this yours to give? He asked at last with an effort. And Bilbo responds, Oh, well, said the Hobbit uncomfortably, it isn't exactly, but, well, I am willing to let it stand against my claim. So right there, Bilbo gives up his stake of the treasure. Definitely. And the fact that he comes home with a chest of silver and gold is only because Dane is an honorable guy and, and he wants to, uh, to reward the Hobbit for all his selflessness and, and um, all his efforts in negotiating uh, the truce, I guess, in the end. And so we'll turn to that page now. Uh, page 337, The Return Journey. Dane to Bilbo. <clears throat> to Bilbo he said, This treasure is as much yours as it is mine. Though old agreements cannot stand, since so many have a claim in its winning and defense. Yet, even though you were willing to lay aside all your claim, I should wish that the words of Thorin, of which he repented, should not prove true that we should give you little. I would reward you most richly of all. Very kind of you, said Bilbo, but really, it is a relief to me. How on earth should I have got all that treasure home without war and murder all along the way? I don't know. And I don't know what I should have done with it once I got it home. I am sure it is better in your hands. In the end, he would only take two small chests, one filled with silver and the other with gold. Now, at this point, uh, I'm going to dive into some unknown stuff. For example, it's rumored that Bilbo uh, has tunnels filled with treasure. And we hypothesized off-air that uh, because of Bilbo's relationship with dwarves, it was rumored and, and people knew in Hobbiton, the other hobbits knew that dwarves were coming and going from Bag End. We hypothesized that it was possible that they were bringing uh, more of the payment. Um, sure, yeah. If Bilbo couldn't carry it all back himself, his uh, two chests were all he could carry, it was possible that over time um, they were bringing more treasure to him. But I did a little digging, and if we're to believe uh, what it says in... Many partings on page 965, at the bottom of the, or 964, at the bottom of the page, it says, To Sam, he gave a little bag of gold, almost the last drop of the smog vintage, he said. May it come in useful if you think of getting married, Sam. Sam blushed. Uh, That takes place in Rivendell, uh, and it's, if you believe Bilbo there, he's saying, you know, this is the last of of the uh, treasure I brought home from the uh, smog hoard, so... The idea that, that dwarves might have been, you know, adding to his payment probably gets blown out the window there. Yeah. So Sting, a mithril coat, two chests, and the necklace I mentioned earlier that he gave to Thranduil. Uh, that's what uh, Bilbo was paid. Now let's look at number three. Did Bilbo feel that he was fully compensated? I'm going to start by turning to page 333 of The Hobbit, chapter The Return Journey. This is the scene uh, where Thorin's dying. Spoiler alert. Bilbo knelt on one knee, filled with sorrow, 
Farewell, King Under the Mountain, he said. This is a bitter adventure, if it must end so, and not a mountain of gold can amend it. Yet I am glad that I have shared in your perils. That has been more than any Baggins deserves. No, said Thorin. There is more in you of good than you know, child of the kindly West. Some courage and some wisdom, blended in measure. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Now, I'm really glad I got to include that incredible piece of writing uh, by Tolkien about the value of uh, food and cheer and song above hoarded gold. Uh, but I think that passage that I just read sort of summarizes Bilbo's compensation. He, Bilbo, basically uh, tells Thorin as he's dying, not all the money in the world uh, would, would make this worth it. Sure. But yeah. um, what I am glad to take away is that I shared this adventure with you. Uh, so the, the personal relationship and the adventure and the life lessons are worth more to Bilbo than, than all the money in the world. And, and Thorin is just sort of blown away by uh, this simple hobbit uh, having so much wisdom and depth of character to realize uh, more than Thorin did himself uh, the value of the simple things in life. So I think, uh, you know, Bilbo's takeaway, I don't, I don't think Bilbo, if he could have carried all the treasure on his back easily would have taken it because um, Bilbo knew that the dragon, you know, especially after watching his friend uh, die of the dragon sickness, if you will, uh, I think he, you know, really took away that uh, money wasn't everything. Uh, it was something. He still did take some money away, but it wasn't everything. And uh, he, he was compensated uh, fully and wholly uh, at the end of it, I believe. Wonderful. On to... Our three questions segment. Uh, inside that, that's, and this is probably why the Mithril bag felt a little heavy to you this week, May. Uh, inside that yeah. bag at the bottom, Ads, you want to pull out our Palantir? Yeah, I do. Have you got the, uh, have you got the extension lead? I do. Oh, I think I'm saying that <laughs> wrong. I think it's, it's one of the Palantir, but I think it's a Palanti, uh, a, a single one. I'll look it up. Um, but I, I think we have a plenty. Either way, uh, we've got to fire up our... Oh, go ahead. Cough it out, May. I can't believe I haven't had a coughing fit yet with my pneumonia. <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring one out, uh, self-prophesize it. But Don't make her laugh. She'll go off again. Uh, <laughs> she coughed out her internet before. Let's, um, <laughs> she did. Let's, <laughs> let's fire up those... Uh, Pal Palantir apps that we all downloaded so we can have some, uh, some yep. sound to go along with our visuals. Regular listeners of the show will know that that Gandalf lightning strike means we've got a correction to make. And as usual, it's my mistake. Uh, it's Palantir, single, and Palantiri, plural. So there you go. Uh, that's corrected. Back to the show. So we're finally ready for our new segment, one, two, three questions. Hold on to your hats. And I will dial in one Jeff LaSala of Tor.com, our good friend of the show and super awesome guy, uh, Tolkien aficionado, and yep. uh, just a, a really cool dude. So uh, Jeff, Jeff, can you hear us? Yep. Yep. Hey, I hear you, James. Come in, Jeff. We see you there. Look, looks like... Uh, ooh, New York State. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing pretty good, guys. Hello. 
Uh, this is some pretty sweet first stage technology you have here. Maybe pre-first stage, pre-sun and moon anyway. That, um, that Palantir app that you linked me to, James, was surprisingly easy to install. I didn't even have to make an account. Well, buddy, it's, it's great to see you. Uh, we're excited to do these three questions. Uh, Ads is going to kick it off with the first one. And um, yes, believe me, we're excited to hear uh, everything you have to say. So please take your time and ramble on. We've been doing that so far on the show. Um, take your time with these and, and let us know what you think. Ads, take it away and ask uh, Jeff the first question from Juan to three questions. I sure will. Well, buddy, okay, my question is going to be, <coughs> what part of where you live most reminds you of Middle Earth? Okay, um, I'll have to ramble on a bit because there's really no one answer I can give. It's, it's kind of a collective thing. So I live uh, right at the north edge of New York City in the Bronx. Um, but as I don't think there's much in the city that's very Middle Earth-like, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say that it's my proximity to places north of me, um, where, places where I go with my wife and son often, uh, that really are more Middle Earth-like, uh, specifically the Hudson Valley, which is reachable to us in no time by car. Um, and I did spend many of my teenage years in West Point, which is right in the middle of Hudson Valley. Um, that's the military academy, the Army Military Academy, where my dad was a professor. Uh, the academic buildings there are castle-shaped. They have gargoyles. Um, it's all very hilly and woodsy, very uh, scenic. Um, it's a good place to fire the imagination of a reader of fantasy, I'll say that. Um, but anyway, nowadays, my family, we search out places, uh, whatever's interesting that we can get to. Granted, very little in the States can compete with the age and sheer history of Europe and England, but we do, ha- we, we, we do all right all things considered. Uh, My wife and I are pretty good at discovering colonial ruins and graveyards, um, haunted sites, uh, even castles made by rich Americans long ago, which are patterned after styles of the old world. But I think it's just the woods of the Hudson Valley and New New York State in general that really do captivate me. Uh, I always go back to them. Um, And while I may not have the English countryside that inspired Tolkien, I do have New England, and that's got all kinds of treasures and sites for anyone who puts in the effort to seek them out. There's no Weathertop, there's no Amundsen, but there's always Gillette's Castle in Connecticut, uh, the ruins in Untermeyer Park in Yonkers, or the old Croton Aqueduct Trail um, that runs on the east side of the river. Um, I'm also fairly close to Sleepy Hollow, uh, which has its own famous literary marker. so that's just some of that. There's a lot of places I can get to that make me think of Middle Earth. And often Terrific. Do. Jeff, that's, yeah, that's, uh, you don't disappoint. Those are, those are great answers, and uh, I wish I lived yeah, closer I to that. where you live. Yeah, I love that answer. Um, I guess I'll take it away with the second one. Uh, if our friends of the show don't already know, Jeff is uh, a great writer, and he's got um, a great primer series right now on Tor.com. And if you haven't checked it out, he is just incredible at modernizing and uh, spinning the Silmarillion uh, in, into a way that it makes it uh, palatable to people from every walk of life. He puts in... He modernizes it, doesn't he? Super yeah. funny. Pop culture references. And super funny. Um, yeah. he, he delves deep. He's great with puns. He's great with wordplay. He's great with analogies. Um, so go check out his primer. Um, and, and that leads me to my question, Jeff. Uh, if 
Professor Tolkien himself could get his hands on your primer or, in fact, anything else that, that you've uh, written, what would you want him to say about it? What would you want him to think about it? <laughs> Good question. Oh, man. Um, I, first of all, thank you. Um, I'm rather fond of the primer, too, even though it's, I see all of its flaws all the time. Um, I think there's a big difference between what Tolkien would say and what I would want him to say. Um, in his writing, Tolkien's humor is subtle. It's pure wit. There is definitely humor to be found, but it's layered in. Whereas my primer is not subtle, um, and I kind of think he wouldn't like my approach, the types of jokes and the wisecracking, but I'd like to think that he'd appreciate mm, the outcome a little bit. I've heard from just enough people who've said the Silmarillion primer helped them finally get into and read the books where otherwise they found it too hard. So just enough people to make me feel like it's really worth all the jokes. And I guess I just want more people to give the book a try. That's why I did it. Uh, sort of the same thing you guys are doing, but we all approach it in different ways, which is perfect. Um, I, too, found the Silmarillion rather hard to get into for a very long time until I decided to just dive in deep. Uh, listening to fellow nerds talk about the material, like you guys uh, and the Prancing Pony guys, really, really helps. So, yeah, now I know my Mithrosses from my Maglors and my Kurufins from my Caligorms, my Fingons from my Fingolfins. When you think about how it was all written, how Tolkien went his whole life not knowing if his full mythology, his whole secondary world, would get out there to the readers. After all, even his Lord of the Rings publisher kept saying no to the Silmarillion during his lifetime. It's a bit sad. So anything I can do to help promote it, I will. And by the way, let me just add something if I can. I know this is probably obvious, but I just want to say it anyway. The Silmarillion Primer is deliberately written in a whimsical, cliche-laden way. It pokes fun at the material, but it really is meant to be flattery. Um, I love Tolkien's style and poetry. I wouldn't want him to have written it any other way. My primer is just like side commentary or after the fact. I did put a lot of research and rereading into it, but it's still just homage. Um, also, my brother, John Lasala, who's a musician and a sound editing guy, is my primary proofreader. He's been sort of a passenger for, uh, along for the ride the whole time. Um, and he's actually written a few of the jokes and, and makes a lot of good suggestions and helps me trim away my really, really bad ones that you don't want to see. Um, anyway, I just wanted to give him a shout out. Thanks, bro. Um, all of that said, my other type of writing is not the same. I've published some fantasy and sci-fi fiction and some role-playing game materials, and for the most part, it's just not a bunch of jokes. Okay, that's my rambling answer. All right, that sounds awesome. Jeff, yeah, no. I really like that part. You're yeah. a writer uh, as well, May, so that must make a lot of sense to you. I'm a humble writer. <laughs> I'm a humble, humble writer. Jeff is a solid writer, and here's my third question to you, Jeff. So, what is it that you love about Tolkien and his books? Let's hear it. Jeez, May. That's like the most agonizingly difficult question ever. Um, I can't be comprehensive in answering that, or even properly succinct. Um, so I'll just say that I love how Tolkien's stories are not just grandiose legends that sound good but can't be related to. For all their comparisons to mythology, they're not like reading real folk tales or epics or Greek mythologies. They're not actually like reading Beowulf or the Odyssey. Um, they're about 
a lot of recognizably real and universal things. Uh, hope, despair, sorrow, mercy, friendship. Um, and it's all just merely cloaked in myth. The Lord of the Rings itself is about taking responsibility and stepping up even when bad things are thrust upon you that aren't of your own making. I mean, who can't relate to that in some way? Um, when I first got into Tolkien as a kid, watching the animated movies, the Rankin-Bass, the, the Bakshi movies, um, the Black Riders are scary and fun, and Smaug is fantastical and larger than life. Um, but as I grew up, other things emerged from the books, and new things seemed to apply. And then it's not just fantasy anymore. It's like the story grows up with you, if that makes sense. I think that's why The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion are infinitely rereadable. Any real good story is like that, I guess, but I haven't read many authors who understood life and what it was to be human and knew what morals are worth having quite as well. Tolkien's faith in the good in humanity and the wariness of the bad, it's all there. And yes, even a bit about God and our place in his universe. It's there for us to feel it if we want to, but it's not, it's not in your face, it's not preachy, but it is very present. And I do think the Silmarillion totally counts, by the way. For all its lofty language and high-profile heroes and villains, you can still see the spectrum of human behavior, even in its inhuman characters. If we want to be, we can be as loyal and neighborly as Finrod Felagund, or as stubborn and independent as Haleth, or even as thick and dense and bullheaded as Turin Turambar. And uh, speaking of Huan, look at Huan. He's such a good boy. How does he not embody every dog ever that loves unconditionally? Well, almost unconditionally. If you try to kill Huan's friends more than once, then screw you, man. How's that for a rambling answer? Well, you won't hear any arguments from me. Huan is a good boy, and what a terrific answer, Jeff. So insightful and uh, honest and uh, so relatable. I, I completely agree. Never misses an opportunity to, uh, to think of something that, that you knew but wouldn't have thought of on your own. Uh, Jeff's got uh, a, a great take. Thank you for joining us, Jeff, on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. It's been so much fun to have you. Well, thank you, James, Ads, May. This has been fun. Uh, I've never been perceived through a seeing stone before. A very unique experience. But hey, just be careful, all right? They're not all accounted for. We don't know who else may be watching. <laughs> All right. Well, buddy, we hope your uh, American Thanksgiving um, is a great big feast and Christmas is coming. I'm not sure exactly when we're going to get this show to air, but uh, when it does, everybody, please go check out Jeff LaSala at uh, Tor.com. The reason we created this show was to uh, include people like him from our community, mm. uh, get them on the show and, and talk a little bit yeah. about them and the great stuff they do. So, uh, Jeff is worth your time. Please go check him out. Jeff, thanks for joining us. You, and you won't regret we'll it. See you next time, buddy. Uh, okay, guys, I think I'd better run before Sebastian, that's my four year old, discovers I've got this cool, shiny new app on my phone. He's going to want to play with it. He loves fiddling with my phone. Okay, I'm going to say bye. Thank you. Bye. Take care, Jeff. Take care. So, next, we get to dive into chapter eight of The Darkening of Valinor. And this is a really cool chapter in that it introduces a really cool character, one of the interesting female characters in this book. And I point out that she's female because Tolkien sometimes takes some heat uh, for his lack of female uh, characters. But the Silmarillion is unlike uh, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit in that aspect. Uh, it does have 
more women, and they're interesting and powerful and, and uh, cool women. And, and this one is uh, an evil um, woman spider, but she's really cool. So we, we get introduced to her right near the beginning. It says uh, basically that when uh, Manway figured out that Melkor had disappeared, he assumed that he would go back to his stronghold in the north, when in fact, um, Melkor, being pretty clever, more clever than Manway, <clears throat> right here, uh, <laughs> s- slips away to the south. And, uh, and down in the south, um, they, they say is unheated land, where, where apparently uh, this part of Valinor, just nobody goes there. Uh, so much so that this big evil um, being can hide there, uh, un- unknown to them. So that Ads and I sort of both balked on that a little bit. Didn't we, Ads? We did, yeah. I mean, I look, the unexplored, long unheeded. Um, it seems a bit strange if you have created the very land that you, you know, live on that you wouldn't know what lived down in the dark areas and you wouldn't want to know what lived down in the dark areas. Um, right. Especially especially if you're up against a bad guy like Melkor. Yeah. Right? Very and true. that you would have known that there were um you know, Myers who did take Melkor's side, who right. would have come down at the same time potentially and just happened to choose to live, you know, down south in that dark, unexplored um area. I'm gonna call out Orome on this one. What he he gave up hunting in the in this, yeah. First after the creation ages, like after the lambs fell, he was like, nah, I don't need to hunt anymore. Didn't he get bored just hanging out in Valmar? <laughs> well, maybe Manway failed to tell him to go there. Ooh, shots fired. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know that that he took orders like <laughs> that from Manway, but uh, it is interesting that even you know Orome would, that didn't know about this place. That you'd think that would be his like stomping ground, this the you know, place he could hunt and. And explore, but anyway, um, off-air ads and I sort of agreed that it was similar to how spaceships in sci-fi travel at the speed of plot. Um, he, <laughs> what? <laughs> how fast a ship is depends on how dire the circumstances are, and and they okay. arrive when they need to, uh, and that's just something you have to accept um, when it comes right. to, to spaceships. And in this case, I, I'm, I'm sort of saying that. The professor needed a place to hide on Goliant, so right, all of a sudden right. this corner of uh, Valinor is unexplored and unheated. It's very convenient, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but at, and uh, something that we did bring up off air as well is she can be invisible. When she spins her, her unlight, if she found a, a small know. enough corner, um, even if people were occasionally in that part of, uh, of Valinor, they could easily miss her. So she hides, and I guess we got to accept that she just easily hides there. Yeah. Okay, I have to give it to her. She spins the coolest invisibility cloak that can rival Harry Potter's. Right? <laughs> right? It is cool. Except, it's super cool. <laughs> except that her mischief is not managed. Let's put it this way. Oh, clever, right? clever. So, yeah. Well done. Um, yeah. She, uh, no, you're right. Uh, we, I guess I'll, I'll say it now because you sort of tangented me there in my mind, but she's an addict. Um, she, her, her web that she spins is unlight. Uh, she, she needs to feed on light. She hates light, but she, she hates that she loves to, to eat it. She's, she's an addict. And I, and I know at, you're going to touch on that in a minute, May, but I wanted to, to point that out about our, our spider is, 
Um, she, she's uh, driven to do something that she hates, hates uh, and feeds off it. And, and, and uh, she's quite a twisted and tormented character in that way. Definitely. Well, she kind of prides herself in the fact that she has no master, right? Because she's separated herself from Melkor. That's right. But she is not masterless. She's a master to her addiction. She's a master to the light. So she hates that she actually has to bend to her needs. She mm. has to bow to her desires. Yes. And that makes her... You know that does not make her a independent individual. She's she's a slave to her needs. Basically. I, l- I loved when you pointed that out um, this week. You, know, you, you said uh, you know she prides herself on on being her own master when you know she isn't, and that drives her you know really quite uh, cruelly insane. Um, so uh, from before we get too far, we we keep calling her a spider, but let's talk about that for a second. Ads, can you uh, read something that sets up uh, her appearance? Yeah, sure. Okay, so, in a ravine she lived and took shape as a spider of monstrous form, weaving her black webs in a cleft of the mountains. There she sucked up all light that she could find and spun it forth again in dark nets of strangling gloom until no light more could come to her abode and she was famished. I love the way you read, buddy. Cheers, buddy. Um, <laughs> but so she, yeah, she chooses uh, that form, the form she chooses, which uh, is reminiscent of the other Ainu um, that, can, that can walk around un, uncloaked and unveiled uh, with no form at all, or they can choose, choose uh, physical forms, and she chooses to look like a spider. Do you, um, think, sp- do you think she is the first spider? Yes, because so, I don't, I don't think she's one of the inside. I don't know what I could be wrong, but I don't think Yavanna made her. I could be wrong. But maybe she's, maybe she's not an actual spider. Maybe she's in the likeness of a spider. She, she is. Oh, she, no, she is. Yeah. Already. Yeah. No, but definitely. She, but were there she's spiders not a already? Spider. Like, yeah, I know what you mean. Though, are the are the spiders that exist in Middle Earth the real spiders? Are they her offspring from her likeness, or did she take a form mm. of something that she'd already seen and knew? Uh-huh. In the music. The chicken and the egg question, right? Right. Which came first? That's, that's, hmm. uh, but then, if you, if you, you know, James, if you say, if you think about it, the the um, Ainu take physical form to resemble um, elves and, and and men, don't they? Yeah, that's They're, true. You know, they took that form before elves and men were walking <coughs> around. So <coughs> maybe she's taken the form of a spider. Because she's seen, she's seen that in the music. That's a she's she's sung that strong part possibility. In the music or whatever. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They knew what the elves looked like. Um, Aule had a poor memory, um, yeah. but they knew what the elves looked like from the from the vision they were granted in the music. So uh, as she being uh, if she's a one of the Ainu, which we think she might be, um, then she would have been taking part in that music, singing next to uh, Gandalf and Manwe and Varda. It's always funny to me to think that like the good guys and bad guys were, were chilling singing a song once. Yeah. <laughs> Kumbaya, yeah. holding hands. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I have a question with respect to that because something just doesn't sit right with me. Um, when, when they described a spider just hiding in a cleft and kind of weaving this web on top of her and she's 
feeding off whatever light filters through this web until at some point there's no more light. So she's in complete darkness, right? Right. And it defeats the purpose of her addiction, right? Because she hungers for light. But she encloses herself in this kind of cocoon or under this blanket where there's absolutely no light. Yeah, but it's, that does parallel addiction in a way in, in that you're seeking to feel good. But when you do when you do drugs or, or you know fulfill your addiction, gambling, whatever it is, you you always end up feeling bad. But you keep doing it again, seeking that good feeling, even though in the so, long run you're mostly feeling like crap. But you think she's isolating herself in darkness so that she feels better, or it's her way of dealing with this addiction so she has control over it for a while, because I, I don't know because I was trying to understand why it is that she doesn't creep out and get closer slowly, slowly. Like she, Melkor has to come over to her place and and convince her to to leave her web she, and to get out into the real world and and you know and with the promise of of having more light to to feed off. You know, she, she does fear them, why, doesn't she? She she does fear the she fears the yes. So That's she's true. afraid. She, but her fear at this point is stronger than her hunger because well, she'd prefer hiding out in darkness than risking getting, you know, I caught think or, part of it is the darkness is a result of when she fulfills her addiction. When she is near light and consumes it, it she spits it forth as darkness. So she comes right. out to the edge of her darkness. The edge of her darkness just moves. And Oh, so she's always in darkness then. Almost. And it, uh-huh. even on our trip over, she's spinning webs. She spins right. that veil as she goes. Right. So that I thought she, I thought she was spinning it more like as a concealment, so that they can move like unseen. But I, if that's she, a, a benefit, I think of of what happens when she consumes light. Mm-hmm. What well, benefit to them when they're sneaking around? I don't know that it's a benefit right. to her and her lifestyle. Like you say, she she craves the light, but. but consuming it can creates darkness it's such a it's such a tormented situation i mean it says she fled to the south escaping the assaults of the valar and the hunters of orome for their uh vigilance had never been to the north um so i mean there's definitely an element that she she wanted to sort of protect herself um, yeah and i think i think that's it i don't know that her do you guys think that that ravine was growing do you think that the darkness around her ravine was growing? Or was she, from what I took, is she basically found a spot, consumed all the light in that area, created this thing of darkness, and just hid in the middle of it, even though she was starving, right? So she, yeah. it's not like that, that they would have eventually discovered her because the shadow she was creating was growing and growing. She was basically, like, trapped there, right? That's what it sounds like. It sounds yeah. like she's trapped, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, she's... Uh, She's convincible, at least. She's fearful and addicted, but Melkor's on the promise, I guess, of... of I guess it would be like, a, like a, a junkie promising you, like, the best whatever it is that you're addicted to, like the best women or the best gambling or the best drugs or the best alcohol, and you just... Your addiction's too strong. She couldn't, she couldn't say no? No, she, she, yeah. she can't. She can't turn that, that possibility away, can she? She... She doesn't want to do what Melkor asks her or tells her to do um, because she doesn't want to be under his 
control, but equally, as, as Mays suggested, the control from the addiction is is more than than she can than she can stop. Yep. I, I love you guys must have loved this sentence too, because I don't know, we seem to be on the same page with this stuff, but thus did the great thief set his lure for the lesser. I don't know, I love I love <coughs> the way they that the professor phrased that. Uh, he, he knew in his heart he had no intention of fulfilling any promises if it wasn't very easy to do. Um, you know, he he just said whatever he needed to say in that moment to convince her, and he, they were yeah. they were half truths. And yeah, I mean, here's here's an interesting um, little uh, little addition. Um, I read that, and when I tried to then explain it to you guys later on, I think I used the words that Melkor's weaving his own web of lies, mm-hmm. which was Love that. you know quite a little comparison to the spider and and the webs that, that she's weaving. Um, I thought I thought that there was another comparison between the way Melkor gets things by all of his lies um, compared to um, you know the promises of certain elves later on in this chapter, um, mm-hmm. which can lead to huge <laughs> issues later on. Um, with people having to honour promises that were made or vows that were made, um, as we'll see. Oh, ads, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't caught that exactly, but yeah, um, when Melkor makes these promises, he doesn't care uh, no. what he says because he doesn't plan to He's never, never he going to keep them, no. But there's another character who makes a promise in, coming up, yep. one of, um, and, and because of the type of character he is, that binds him to a fate. So yeah, no, that's, that, I, hadn't, I hadn't caught those, those two promises, and... Uh, well, well, let's plug along. Um, before we we uh, we move on to talking about parties and elves, let's stay on this spider for a minute. Now, I know May was getting excited to talk spiders because she had she had a little. I, I was going to call it a wormhole or a rabbit hole to dive into, but we'll call it a spider hole. You should and, call uh, it. A, you should call it a black hole. Oh, you I'm know so what? Mad That's I didn't say excellent. That <laughs> excellent. Yes. Yes. Um, it's unlight. Hole. It's not just darkness. It's unlight. Um, mm. So yeah, take that unlight and weave us a tale. May, can you uh, dive into your spider hole? Yeah. As long as you guys are ready for the ride. So we're yes, going to step away from uh, Tolkien verse <laughs> for a while. Um, well, the first thing I'd like to do is I'd just like to read a quick little excerpt from the chapter. It's on the first cha- first page of the chapter. And it talks about the origin of the spider herself. And it says, The elder knew not whence she came, but some have said that in ages long before she descended from the darkness that lies about Arda. When Melkor, sorry, when Melkor first looked upon in envy, oh God, sorry guys, <laughs> I can't read this. So okay, <clears throat> let's start again. <clears throat> The elder knew not whence she came, but some have said that in ages long before she descended from the darkness that lies about Arda, when Melkor first looked down in envy upon the kingdom of Vanway, and in the beginning she was one of those that he corrupted to his service. And the rest is, we know. Okay, so um, from this, I'm going to take you on a little ride through... (laughs) We like rides. (laughs) Hanging on. Through non-Western civilizations and the concept of Torpa. So here we go. 
it all starts with a man called H.H. Price. So Dr. Price was a philosopher and a parapsychologist who happened to have spent his life teaching in Oxford. Sound familiar? Maybe. He was a contemporary of Tolkien, and in some odd synchronicity, guys, the two men almost share the same years of birth and death. Wow. Okay? So um, I can only imagine that they must have known of each other, or maybe they knew each other, or they knew of each other's work. But here's the connection that I find interesting, because Price uh, spent his life uh, researching, speculating, teaching about human perception and reality, the concept of the afterlife, and relevant here in our story, the formation of thought forms. Okay. Okay? Yeah. All right? Okay, okay. so first thing first, what is parapsychology, you might ask? May, what's well, parapsychology? Paras- yeah. <laughs> awesome question, James. <laughs> Wonderful. So parapsychology is the study of the paranormal and psychic phenomena, including telepathy, precognition, clairvoyance, psychokinesis, near-death experiences, synchronicity, reincarnation, apparitional experiences, and other paranormal claims. Are we good? We're good. You're good. All right. Okay. Um, Now, for the concept of a thought form. So what is a thought form? So... The idea that our forms and emotions can manifest as entities and affect our reality. So that what, that's what a thought form is. So I don't know if you guys remember, but back about 10 years ago, there was a book that was released by Rhonda Byrne, and it was called The Secret. Um, I think it was like it just blew up over... Uh, yeah, I know. I everybody read The oh, Secret. right. Right? You did. Okay. So uh, it was huge on Oprah, you know, it was on CNN. It was like, you know, it was, you need to read this book if you want to succeed in life kind of thing. You know, how can you control your future? How can you become successful? Anyways, they made a movie about it. And just so that you guys know, they had a budget of about $3 million to make this movie, which was a kind of documentary. And they ended up grossing twenty. Uh, sorry, they ended up grossing $65 million at the box office wow. with this concept of the secret. Okay, so That's Rhonda's agent and publishers must have been laughing all the way to the bank, and so was she. Maybe she drives a pink Cadillac nowadays. I have no idea. <laughs> but <laughs> in a nutshell, the concept of the secret is that if you desire something strongly enough, it will happen to you. Okay, and I think in the movie and in the book, it came down to something very uh, materialistic, such as writing yourself a check for a million dollars and setting a timeline. So in five years from now, I will receive a check to my name for the amount of a million dollars. And I think that's why people just latched on to this idea because of our dragon sickness, because of humanity being driven by obviously, you know, riches and 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 personal gain and whatnot but um this concept of your thoughts affecting your reality and your surroundings is very present in non-western civilizations and i'm talking about like anything from the siberian shamans to like first nations 
perhaps not First Nations as we know them today, but like the heritage of beliefs that has been uh, uh, conserved within First Nations. Um, Tibetan monks actually have a term for these thought forms, and they call them torpas. And this is something that is still ongoing today and has been studied by anthropologists and scientists and whatnot. And it's basically um, the fact that these monks will enter a deep state of meditation while their bodies are enduring tremendous pain for prolonged periods of time. So they enter this alternate state of consciousness. And these monks claim that their thoughts can materialize into tangible entities. Okay? So imagine that this monk is concentrating his focus on, for example, um, creating a hunter or a hunting figure, uh, a wolf or perhaps a bird of prey. Well, there is a materialization that occurs that is not only visible to the individual who creates this thought form, but also to people around them, okay? And this might sound really weird because we're not used to stuff like that, right? (laughs) But something that we might be more uh, familiar with is the creation of intention, okay? This is something that to us Westerners, we understand this concept a little bit better because... Let's say something terrible happens. There is, for example, what's happening now in California with the raging fires, a tsunami, a school shooting. What is the first thing that leaders will say when they address the population? Thoughts and prayers. Exactly. And why do we say that? Do we just say that because it's it's like a a socially expected thing to do? Maybe it is. But the, the, the essence of sending your thoughts and your prayers towards someone who is suffering, sick, whatnot, has a benefit, a benefit, um, beneficial effect towards um, helping this person heal or, or um, work through their, their hardship, okay? And you uh, are probably familiar with, uh, obviously, the concept of, you know, one of your relatives is sick and, and you might just uh, be sending them, like you say, good vibes, you know. You may be bending your intentions on them doing well, uh, doing better, getting over the hurdle and whatnot. Okay, so this is all something I think that we as Westerners can relate to. Is that yeah. right, guys? Yeah. Some yeah. Westerners could definitely relate to that. Okay. All right. But what if, I'm asking you this, what if the intention is not good? What if the intention is evil? What happens then? Like voodoo. Wow. Thank you so much. I love that you said that, James. That's awesome. Because yes, when you have an evil intention, it is as potent as a good intention. And this idea of a thought form or an intention, which is evil, is at the base of, let's say, curses. So call it whatever you want. Curses are a concept that are rampant throughout like most cultures. Gypsy curses, voodoo curses, African juju curses. And I'm not making this up. It's an actual word, juju. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually pretty impressive. What is but, it? Um, 
It's it's a whole system of belief in magic, uh, which is performed by a witch doctor. And people will go up to this witch doctor. They will pay an amount of money. They will target a person in particular in the village or in the city. And a curse will be placed on, on this person. And through our Western lens, we kind of like, ha ha, we laugh it off. And we're like, oh... Old wives' tales and hocus pocus, primitive superstitions, whatever you want. But we don't do that when it's reversed. (laughs) But to these people, this is very real. And to our scientific mind. Your perception is your reality, right? It is, but it goes beyond that because I'll tell you what parapsychology is actually studying this, this matter, okay? And there are tangible results that can be measured statistically that show that the human mind does indeed have an effect on reality. So your thoughts, your mind ripples out into, into your, the world around you. And you might ask me, like, what do you mean exactly? So what do you mean exactly? Yeah, what do you mean exactly, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> So uh, if we're going down into like we're going down to the to the scientific aspect of it, so the studies that are going on right now deal with let's say placing a subject in front of a computer screen and giving the subject a clicker, and the computer screen is blank and the subject is asked to click randomly, and sometimes they'll click and the screen will just stay blank, and sometimes they'll click. And they will they will be shown like a clip of I don't know a movie or something some some animation, and the subject is being told that they should try as much as they can to get access to those clips. Okay, so they're being given an intention, right? So the subject will start and start clicking, and oh, it's not working, it's not working. Oh, I got it, I got the video. So there's the reward, and the next time that they click. Their focus is is bent on getting that video again. So you're taking something that's completely random. You're taking like a computer algorithm and you are actually altering it with the power of your mind. So clicking it, clicking it, clicking it to the point where you are statistically significant when the data is analyzed. Again, the power of intention. Okay? Yeah. But wait a minute, what does this have anything to do with Tolkien, you ask me, right? You ask right? me. Right? Okay. Wait yeah. a minute, what does this got anything to do with Tolkien? Awesome, so have you asked, Ads, because the answer is everything, everything. Okay, so here we go. So okay. now we're, we're, so this whole setup now is going back into our chapter eight, when Melkor casts his first glance at Arda, and he is overcome with jealousy, envy, and wrath, and he hates what he sees, and he hates the beauty and the cohesion of it all, and he wants to dominate it. From his strong emotional response comes some kind of darkness that seeps into Arda, right? It says so in the text. Yeah. And... Angolian is a personification of this strong emotion, okay? So Melkor's hate and envy are so violent that they become an entity of their own. They become a thought form. They become an intention, 
okay? And that intention takes the shape of a big, fat, ugly spider in this book, <laughs> right? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Okay, all right. And what happens, so when we talked about those Tibetan monks and the torpa that they create, okay, sometimes these thought forms are temporary. They're transitional. They will last only for a couple of instants and vanish. Sometimes they live, they live on artificially. They live on for a short while. Sometimes they even outlive their creator, okay? Now, we have to take this at face value because we don't have, like, birds of praise flying around in our backyard that are not really birds of praise, but just, you know, a thought form from some kind of Mongolian monk somewhere in Tibet. But if you go ahead with this idea that the thought form can separate itself from its maker, from the intention, for example, from the voodoo curse or the juju curse, so the maker of the intention releases the intention or the thought form out into reality and this thought form, this intention becomes its own entity, then you get what Angolian is. So you get Melkor's wrath transmutating into a being that operates on its own with its own desires and its own um, uh, master at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. An Angolian basically becomes um, just another minion that works against the Valar and serves herself in her addiction. And that's I love it, it, May. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to support what you said um, about the Angolian being a thought form because I, I said maybe she's an Ainu. That is a possibility. She was one of these formless creatures that, was, that he met in the darkness. But the reason I said we think maybe is because, well, we talked before the show and I knew you were going to, um, I had a, a suspicion as where you were going, and as you, as you were building your case, I was loving it. Um, and all it says about what they know about where she comes from is from this perspective of the Eldar. Those are elves. They don't yeah, know very much right. about the creation of the earth. They're, they're basing that on what they know of the other beings that are big and powerful like that, but they don't really know. So it's entirely mm-hmm. possible that the creation of Vangoliant um, was, was a thought form process exactly as you described. We have no way... Um, it's very vague what's mentioned in the text, and and the people that he, it's it's funny they don't say like, you know, this is what the Valar thought where she came from because that would be much more concrete. But like the Eldar don't know anything about the the beginning of time, so it's a, it's a very vague reference. So yeah, could, you, right? Could do you know totally what as well? The the, uh, the other thing to say is, for the rest of this chapter, we see. Um, we see Melkor and Ungolian actually acting almost as one. You know, they, they travel as one. Together. Yeah. yeah. Um, which which fits with, with what May what May suggested. And it also ties back into um, the whole addiction thing. You know, the idea that you might have, you know, multiple voices, personas telling you mm. to do something, fighting against the urge to do something. You know, you think back to that that famous scene in in uh, Lord of the Rings with Gollum. And I thought you were going to say train spotting for some reason. I don't know <laughs> I why. I was going to say fight club. <laughs> the, the, the yeah, that having an argument with himself. And yeah, I love um, it. I think it's a great, a great, um, a great point. It is. It's terrific. I'm without getting into a philosophical debate. I the only the only um, part of what you were saying I was I I didn't fully buy into is uh, you were saying reality like it was a tangible thing and I. 
I really do think reality is perception based. Like everybody has their own. There's not like one reality. I don't know. What Absolutely. Do you guys think? Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that was really cool. I love that black hole, and and thanks for the ride. That was awesome. Going to take this opportunity to interject uh, a little something about Tolkien's idea on parapsychology. Uh, in around 1959, he wrote an eight-page essay entitled Osanwe Kenta. And I didn't really remember enough about it uh, while we recorded the show to go into detail. So I looked up uh, a couple of things, and I'll interject them now. Uh, but Tolkien was, was uh, on to the idea that the characters, especially the powers, but actually all the characters... Um, in his mythology, could communicate through thought, the communication of thought. Um, the, the words themselves, Osanwe Kenta, the, the Kenya word for telepathy is Osanwe. Uh, this is a compound word. The prefix O means uh, meeting, conjunction, union, uh, while Sanwe means thought. Uh, and this was his um, way for, for uh, telepathy to happen between um, two characters, and, and there's some rules to it, and, and we'll go into probably more detail in a further episode, uh, but I just thought I'd interject now that Tolkien was also uh, into the idea of parapsychology, and he had a name for it. Definitely. Um, cool. Yeah, so Ungoliant, <laughs> this, this thought form or, or powerful being that comes from the depths of, of uh, the darkness and and takes form as a spider and uh, follows this empty promise, uh, weaves a web so great that um, even the Valar can't see her. And, and uh, while she's on her way there, what are they doing ads? What are we never supposed to do in, in a Tolkien book? What should we never do? <coughs> if at any point whilst reading the Silmarillion they have a party, watch out. <laughs> Don't throw parties. No Don't parties. throw parties. Just don't do um, it. it. It's not good. It never ends well. Yeah, so while, while in the South this is all going on, we've got um, the good guys uh, licking their wounds, wondering where um, Melkor escaped to, searching all over the North in the wrong spot, and Manwe, uh, king and leader of the people, decides to throw a party. Um, <laughs> a big feast, right? Uh, which... Well, we'll stop there for a second. It's interesting that they that they have feasts. They don't even need to take physical forms. But ads, do you want to? Is that a good time for you to to read your second excerpt? Yeah, sure. Okay, so now it was a time of festival, as Melkor knew well. Though all tides and seasons were at the will of the Valar, and in Valinor there was no winter of death. Nonetheless, they dwelt then in the kingdom of Arda. And that was but a small realm in the halls of Ea, whose life is time, which flows ever from the first note to the last chord of Aru. And even as it was then the delight of the Valar, as is told in the Ainulindale, to clothe themselves as in a vesture in the forms of the children of Iluvatar, so also did they eat and drink and gather the fruits of Yavanna from the earth which under Aru they had made. Yeah, I, lo- I love that um, they, they, they've bought into their, <coughs> to their roles as, as um, music makers and, and uh, uh, executors of this big vision that they want to take part in everything. And, yeah. they, and they do wear the physical forms and they, they eat the fruits of the earth and drink the waters of the earth. Do they drink Almo? Hmm. 
<laughs> I just, just That's a fair point. <laughs> That's a fair point. Almo, <laughs> <laughs> you're delicious. <laughs> it's all right. He's out of um, the room. Have another swig. Um, oh, little awkward. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that. I love that. It, I, and I love also that in that little chapter, it says that um, Yovana pl- planned in this internal clock for for things to ripen and, and be ready to eat, even though there was no winter, no seasons yet. Yeah, I like the fact there was no winter. That I mean, I, I, I knew that, but again, reading it, it hit home. You know, nothing dies there, so there couldn't be a winter. It's, it's always a blossoming... Blossoming. Springtime, um, summertime, yeah. Yes, summer, springtime. Um, but yeah, no, very cool chapter with, uh, with party, time, party time going on. And, uh, well, unfortunately for, for the trees... Um, we've got Ungoliant and Melkor who weave this huge uh, veil cloak um, cloud of darkness so great that it uh, eventually um, they, they make their way to the trees so quickly because um, everybody's at the party uh, that before anyone knows it, Melkor has slashed them uh, open and their sap is being drained by Ungoliant. She drinks it. Uh, to her heart's content, and she, as she yeah. does that, she grows to an enormous size. Oh yeah! It says yeah, it says Morgoth awesome. even Morgoth is uh, becomes afraid because the, okay. the trees the trees light is is so so uh, powerful to her. Here's the visual that I had when I was reading that. So, any fans of Stranger Things here? Yes. 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 For sure. So. Season two, oh, when sure. uh, when Will is back home. So any spoilers here for our listeners? I don't know if uh, you guys are fans as well, but the series has been out for a while, so yeah, hopefully yeah. I won't be spoiling too many things. But in season two, when Will is returned to our plane of reality, but he's kind of plagued with these hallucinations, and yeah. he has these nightmares, and he opens his front door, and what's flashing in the sky... Do you guys remember? Well, Above the know, crowns of the trees? Of course. And you know, it's funny, but, it's, you know, Samwise is in some of those. Scenes. I know. So yes. maybe that might be an intentional, <laughs> like that Ungoliant-like image might be an intentional yeah. shout now that, you, now that you bring it up that way. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, I mean, well, I, I've, I've, got my own, um, I've got my own applicability for this. Do it, uh, do which it. Which I'd like to raise because I, I put a post into the Facebook group a while ago now, and it was after reading um, Jeff's uh, Silmarillion Primer on this actual chapter, on the darkening of Alinor, and I'm just going to read what I put. Jeff mentions how the demise of the trees would have been a where-were-you moment mm-hmm. among the elves mm, yeah. for years and years to come. On reading the chapter again, I experienced a personal applicability of modern historical times. It made me immediately think of 9-11, not just the symbolic twin towers, two trees, but also just the sense that it was such a horrific event, a world-changing event, the realisation that the rules Mm -hmm. had changed, that nothing would ever be the same again, a moment of great evil that dictated all that follows. Mm Mm-hmm. And I love it, Ads. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's Jeff my always makes, uh, makes the observation that that you, you it seems so obvious, but you only see it after he points things out. And that would have totally been a where were you moment, a Berlin Wall, a nine eleven. Yeah, nine eleven. Yeah. 
challenger moment, but yeah, I've got a few in my life, and and um, that would be that would be for the ages, even even for the uh, for the powers. That was a, a once a once in a ea time. Life they don't have lives. So. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. But yeah, so huge and, and great show, great call there. Um, that the trees are down and and uh, and everybody's left in this cloud of darkness. I like how it says uh, or- Orome and, and Tulkis want to go, you know, smash, but it's. <laughs> It describes Tolkis as being like trapped in a black net, like he just he's just sm- wailing and smashing his fists in the air in anger. He just can't see anything or do anything about yeah. it. Yeah, and I the like darkness the... is blinding, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. Eh? The darkness it's not just is darkness. blinding. It, it, it consumes, it right? It, it consumes sound. It consumes yeah. sound because even the horn cannot be blasted. It consumes right. sounds. It makes you blind. It loses. It makes you lose your sense of your orientation. You're, you're really trapped in this kind of like black molasses, you know? Where mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Did you Did you guys pick up the um, like the sort of the reverse tulkus? So. When it says that um, Moko and Angoliant are looking down upon upon the trees before they attack, um, it actually says then Melkor laughed aloud <laughs> and leapt swiftly down the long western slopes. That's Tolkus. That's that's what Tolkus does. That's true. And it's it's, it's been worked in by Tolkien in reverse. Um, and you see how Melkor, Melkor is victorious. Melkor succeeds in this chapter, and you know Tolkus ultimately fails. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's great, Ed. You know, I hadn't I hadn't really seen it that way, but I do now. Mm. Um, yeah, and yeah, and so basically, awful, awful uh, loss, huge victory for the bad guy, awful loss for the good guys, um, and the world will never be the same. Uh, the trees are dead. Uh, Ivana goes over to, to see if they can be healed, and they cannot. Um, they've been they've been completely drained. Um, and and Ungoliant and in her massive new terrifying form and, and uh, cloud of darkness and Melkor escape again. Um, and the, and the Valar just left, um, you know, sort of holding their holding their hands in the pieces and shaking their heads, uh, which yeah. can lead us into talking about how what kind of job Manway does. Um, as a king protector, uh, or you know, is that his, his main task? You guys want to do some manway discussion? Yeah, can, can I? Do you can just I, want to end the show? Can I start? No, can I start this one? Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. And and I'm going to hopefully be backed up um, by by May. Uh, <laughs> I look I, as we sort of touched on right at the start. They don't explore the the dark region, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I'd like to pick up on the very opening part of this chapter, which says, um, when Manwe heard of the ways that Melkor had taken, it seemed plain to him that he proposed to escape to his old strongholds in the north of Middle-earth, and Orome and Tolkus went with all speed northward. So Manwe assumed that Melkor had gone up north, you compare that to how the chapter ends and the last paragraph or last but one paragraph says but Manwe from his high seat looked out and his eyes alone pierced through the night until they saw a darkness beyond dark which they could not penetrate huge but far away moving now northward with great speed and he knew that Melkor had come and gone so 
he assumes at the start, and it leads eventually to the destruction of the trees. He doesn't make the same mistake the second time round, and he actually does what he could have done the first time, and, and looks out. And he knows then that Melkor has fled northward, because he finds the, um, the darkness beyond dark. Right. If he'd have done that the first time round, he'd have known that Melkor wasn't going northward, and things might have been different. Uh, you're not wrong. I can't argue with you there. He, he, as a king, as a, a protector, if, if that's one of his roles, he's awful. Terrible. Mm. You, won't get any, you won't get any argument out of me. Um, my, my only defensive manway is I don't think that he thought that was his primary function. Uh, he was king, and, and a, a king is responsible for his people, but I think he saw himself as a conductor of Eru's composition. And he didn't... F- his job, his, his primary task in his mind wasn't to protect people. It was to execute the music. And the music that he was a part of and that he had um, the best memory of um, was music that was greatly corrupted by Melkor. That yeah. was part of the music that, you know, uh, Melkor would corrupt it. All of the other powers would mend it and make better and more beautiful harmonies. Then he would corrupt it again and then all of the others would mend it. And this, this I think, is what Manway thought his primary task was, was to execute that music. So depending on what we're grading him on, if you're grading him on executor of, uh, you know, the, the, excuse me, the conductor of the music, then I think he gets an A. If you grade him on uh, king of the people, he fails. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, no, it does. And I can see, I can, I can absolutely see your point of view. And I think you look at that from a particular viewpoint and you see it very differently. Um, I just, yeah, I think I think he's he struggles to show true leadership, but yeah, he does seem to. F- a lot of tragedy could be avoided if he made different decisions. I just, I think that's that's how strong he is. Is he lets even though he knows he maybe could do could avoid some. I don't think he thinks it's his task. So imagine having the will power to let tragedy happen just because greater humanity and compassion will, will be created out of it. But, but I Ma- cut off but May. Ma- I wanted, I wanted Mandos, May to jump in. Mandos, Mandos knows stuff. He does. So He's probably the other one who's, who's nearly as farsighted as... Maybe, maybe as farsighted as, as Manway. He does know stuff. Go, go, go mate. You, you say. Yeah, we, okay. we're bullying so the here's, conversation. <laughs> here's my two cents about uh, what I think of our man, Manway. Um, well, I, um, I don't particularly think that he's fit to be, uh, the king or ruler of Arda, and here's why. Um, he's described as not having one evil bone in his body, so he's not even capable of evil thought. And I think that if you are looking out for the interest of a people, you need to be able to think like the enemy. And you need, you need to be able to be ahead of your game. So you have to be able to prepare a war to have peace. Um, that being said, I understand what you're saying, James, about him uh, being closest to uh, the Song of Eru and kind of retaining the most the sharpest image with respect to what the song must accomplish in the end. And my problem with that is that 
that's okay. Like, I mean, he can he can be this key person that holds like the truth or um, Eros will, but that does not make him the best suited person to rule in a tangible physical world. Um, uh oh. <laughs> We can we completely agree. This is bad. <laughs> okay, wait. <laughs> um, where am I going with this? Um, oh yeah. Okay. So I, she's like, oh, I can't be right. I must have lost my way. If you completely I can't agrees. be agreeing with James. Wait, wait. It's wait, a tactic from wrong. James there. Stay, um, stay strong, way. Stay strong. <laughs> what I think, what I think should have happened, and without changing the outcome, is that um, Manway could have been more like. Um, proactive or could have had more agency in dealing with the conflicts in Arda, especially when it comes to Melkor. And despite the fact that he could have been more active, he could have had setbacks the same way that he's having setbacks right now. What I'm saying is that there should have been something that's more convincing in terms of action and reaction. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And never mm -hmm. faltering from the ultimate vision of the song. You know what I mean? So um, that's why I think that our man Manway is a little too soft of a ruler or he's not cunning enough as a ruler. So I don't know. I yeah no I, I won't even argue with you. He's as a as a king of a people, he's not good. He's a bad general. He's got you know he, he he lets tragedy happen to his people. That's not what you expect from. But your does leader. does does he let so, tragedy happen, or does he let tragedy well, happen because he doesn't do something? Does that make sense? Does yes. does he know what yes. does he know what he's doing? Because if he has no evil in him. Which I believe the text says, you know, he doesn't he doesn't it have does. evil in him. To to know that by not acting, that is going to mean X and Y happens, is surely the ultimate yeah. evil. So that almost suggests to me that he doesn't he doesn't necessarily know that his actions are not are not going to lead to X Y. I think do you see does. what I mean, though. That. I think he does. I think, but I, I think t he knows that really bad things happen in the music, but it's not yeah, his but, music. But what, I suppose what I'm saying and is, even though, what I'm saying is, is has he deliberately not pushed for Orome to go and look out the south because he knows that Ungoliant is there and Ungoliant is going to come along in a few years' time and destroy the trees? Or does... No, that's victim blame, I think. I, don't, I think if I walk down the street and I walk down a bad neighborhood and I don't look over my shoulder and someone shoots me, it's on the guy who shot me. Like, yes, I could have, my actions could have changed the situation, but, but someone else's actions are the no, evil. Yeah, I agree mine. with that. But does he know? That's what I'm saying. Does he does he have an inside knowledge to the story, to to the plan, to know that that's going to happen, or, or or is he being naive? I think it. Yeah. To that's a good question, Ed. I don't know the answer. Mm. I'm because not sure. if he doesn't, I, if he doesn't, I think he knows that bad things will happen, but I don't think he knows the specifics. Right. Because if he doesn't, if, um, he, if he knows and he's letting stuff happen, well, then that's does. evil. I don't think so. Because he. He knows he's not coming into a perfect world. He knows there's death and tragedy, and, and he saw it all. And he, he agreed to come in and, and execute it anyways. It's not his evil. It's, that's, if, if it's evil, it's, it's Iru's evil. 
not Mel- not Manways. Yeah, no, I. That, that's yeah, my opinion. I, 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 I agree with you on that. That he's he's brilliant at following Iru's commands, plan. You know, however you want to do it. I my know, issue, I, my issue, I suppose, is just that does he does he just react after something has happened to allow the plan to continue, or does does his actual actions are they? part of the plan his non-actions no i don't think so i think he's he just has to react to the discord like he did when they were singing. so that's the, so he's singing his he's singing his thing and doing yeah. his best to be kind and whatever and then his his brother you know screams and screeches and does a death metal yell and he, and he, he stops singing and looks at, looks at the composer and the composer's like keep singing and so, so they keep going. So that fits, doesn't it? That's, that's that fits a, with the book, the bookend yeah. thing that I was saying. So the start of the chapter, the end of the chapter, bookended. You have two very different um, Manway reactions. Both times he's trying to find um, Melkor. Both times he sends Tolkus and Orome off to to mm-hmm. chase after him. The first time he assumes that he's gone north when actually he's gone south, he doesn't bother going to, to look into it in any detail. The second time, he does. He uses his, his powers, he, he, he locates fact where Melkor is, and then he sends them off to try and get him. Yeah, his reaction is different. So is he learning as he goes? Is he, you know, because the music gets more and more beautiful, right? They discover new harmonies, so he is supposed to get better at it as he goes yeah but to come back to may for a sec because I, f- I feel like we're bullying again uh, the conversation i mean sure um I, we we really don't disagree on much may i i don't think he's a good uh king or you know leader i i do think he's he's a good uh a good herald for for iru a good executor of plans for iru but i don't i don't think he's a good king at all i don't know to me it sounds more like he's a passive stand-in so he's following the plan to the T, you know what I mean? Like, he's just, oh, well, that's what the song says, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's it. I think he is a, that's what he thinks his role is, is to, is to let the music happen like it happened mm. um, and to react and, and fix things, knowing that more beauty is created. Because after Melkor does anything, it's always better after. Yeah. The, 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 the fall of the lamps led to you know, an upgrade in the trees. And, the, and I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a sun and a yeah. moon coming. No way. That will, that will circle the sky and, and create seasons. No way. So, you know, it's, it, there's always an upgrade after. So you have to, he has to let these tragedies occur. Otherwise, they'd be, there wouldn't be the progression. That's right. Um, that, that leads to the, that leads to the, the uh, uh, final beauty. Yeah. And that, that's why we need us some bad guys. <laughs> yeah, the bad guys That's are what's why. good for the. You do need them. They're integral. Absolutely, May. You, you, and May loves a bad okay, guy. Okay, cue to the Spice um, Girl song. Spice up your life. Spice oh, up your life. I might put it in now. <laughs> <laughs> there she is. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> is that through the Palantir app? Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Have you not worked out to play music for it? Didn't you hear? No, didn't I you hear not. that the Spice Girls were moved into Morcon? Um, mo- <laughs> Wait, what's it called, <laughs> that place? Didn't you hear that the Spice Girls moved into Mordor? Alexa, 
That's where they belong. (laughs) So that brings us to the last important thing we came here for tonight, ads. Yes. Well, we established once before when we introduced Caitlin Alansari, our very first ring bearer into a very exclusive club. Um, we, we said we'd be doing them from Rivendell, and tonight we've, we've chosen another super awesome uh, member of our community who's incredibly supportive and really fun and charming and witty, uh, and uh, we just couldn't wait to get her into our little club. So, uh, Ads, can you introduce ring bearer number two? Absolutely. So I am very proud to introduce the one, the only... Pepper. Pepper! Brilliant. She's, she's, she's one of the earliest um, friends to our show. She is such a, a positive and supportive part of our Facebook group um, with all of her wonderful interactions. Um, she really is uh, just a wonderful person and um, we look forward to having many, many more um, friendly interactions together yeah no she is terrific well deserving and uh, i'm gonna uh, i know may has a little ode so may could you take away ode to pepper okay so um dj master j cue to some joyous music ode to pepper with your high spirits you sprinkle some love and joy into our little little facebook group with a song and a smile you spice up every discussion. Your love of all things Tolkien only supersedes your dedication to our humble podcast. Like a good old friend, you spice up our lives. And for this, dear Pepper, we give you our love. Much love. Well Brilliantly said. said. Brilliantly said. <laughs> May, that's terrific. Spice up your life. Uh, Pepper puts spice in our life and puts spice in our group. Uh, I just want to say uh, thank you for being part of our community. Um, if, if I had something to point out about Pepper besides her being an awesome kite flyer, mm-hmm. uh, shout, shout out to Victoria Park. I think that's her stomping grounds. Um, Pepper's, Pepper's super brave. Uh, that's, that's what I, what I notice about Pepper. Uh, Pepper strikes me as the type of person who doesn't avoid things that make her uncomfortable. I think she takes risks and I think she's true to herself. Yeah. And, uh, I, I really admire, uh, Pepper. I think she's really an awesome person. Uh, and I'm really glad she's part of our Facebook group. Does it so, make- Welcome. Yeah. To I was going to say, James, does it make sense? Where uh, when I say she's she's definitely not a yes a yes man or yes lady. Um, I don't get the impression she's much of a yes. She lady, she no. absolutely has her own um, views on you know on everything, but she does it in such a respectful way. And at times in our little Facebook group, you know, some of her comments um, have have clearly shown. That you know she doesn't agree with somebody, perhaps, but she does it in a way that is just so friendly and so. Um, yeah. She's so warm. Yeah, she she you know what you know how where she stands on on anything because she knows where she stands yeah. on things and and I just I love that about her. Agree. Thank you, yeah. Pepper. Got good opinions and she doesn't love elves, so I don't know if the, if if um, this was a a posh uh, place to do her ceremony, but sorry, <laughs> Pepper, we don't do it in the Shire. This is our uh, our ceremony. Um, tradition and you're number two and I can't wait to add uh, more yes. to the group uh, and with, with that ads I, I'm getting the, uh, the long nod from Elrond over there we've been taking up a, a long time here the show's running long so can we kick it over to the sure. homework sure yeah homework for next time uh, chapter nine 
of the flight of the Nodor. Yep, and uh, to anybody out there who hasn't joined our Facebook group yet, like Ad said at the beginning of the show, please find us at the Green Door Podcast on Facebook. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Ads, what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle? I have absolutely no idea because I wasn't expecting that cool. question. I can find it. Mine is, <laughs> what is mine? Tommy Bombadil1. Tommy Bombadil1 on Twitter and Ads uh, is going to kick in ads. his email or excuse me, ads his Twitter handle. Is, da, 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 da. Yes, James, my Twitter handle is at Ads7. As we often do at the end of the podcast, uh, we'd like to mention a few people, a few friends of the show. Um, so, personally, myself, I'd like to recommend you guys all listen to Tumbling Saber podcast. Uh, if you like Star Wars, and I know lots of you know, lots of you do like uh, Star Wars as well as uh, Lord of the Rings and Tolkien, um, do check out Tumbling Saber um, and. Of course, Prancing Pony, Alan and Sean, they do a wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, They're currently at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings now, so do go and give them your ears as well. Absolutely, and uh, I I don't have much to add to that. Thanks for everybody's time. I know we ran long tonight. We hope you enjoyed the rambling chatter. I'll see what uh, kind of mess I can make this (laughs) into uh, in the editing room. But uh, I do I do always appreciate everybody who takes the time to download our show. So thanks for being with us. And with that, Ads, I'll let you sign off uh, right after May. All right, well, May, you've been quiet for a long while now, um, but I know you've been over there eating a lot of snacks, and I see <laughs> my, my tortier is all the way gone, and Ads' tortier is halfway gone. Um, so before you finish out all the food, do you want to say goodnight to everybody? Yes. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We enjoy having you. We enjoy discussing. We enjoy joking around. And this is me reminding you to stay curious. Thanks, May. Yes, look out for us, especially at unlikely times. Good night, dear hobbits. And I'm James wishing everybody a good night, reminding you to keep your feet and happy wandering.
everyone should listen to the Green Door Podcast.